Yeah, but this very moment, 80 years ago, thousands of Allied troops, mostly Canadians, were storming the beaches at Dieppe. Many of them would never come home. Known as Operation Jubilee, the daylight attack on the heavily fortified, then Nazi-occupied town in northern France, proved to be one of the deadliest battles in Canadian military history. It was the first major action seen by Canadian soldiers in Europe at that point. Within a matter of hours, more than 800 of the some 5,000 Canadian soldiers who were part of that mission were killed. 100 more would die of their wounds or in captivity. Some 2,000, nearly 2,000, were captured, 600 wounded. Now, the stated aim of the mission was to hold the port, capture and hold the port, to test the feasibility of landing and gather intelligence. We'll get to that. It was also meant to show the Allies' commitment to reopening the Western Front and supporting the Soviets, who were then fighting the Nazis in the East and to boost morale overall. It would do little more than show what mistakes shouldn't be made for future missions that were similar, lessons ultimately learned with the storming of the beaches at Normandy on D-Day nearly two years later. Now, 10 years ago, I was in Dieppe for the 70th anniversary. So was Montreal historian and author David O'Keefe. We met, we chatted. Um, He spent years researching the raid and would publish a book about it called One Day in August. I was wondering What's he up to for the 80th anniversary? Well, it turns out he's in Dieppe. He's back. He's uh, with a group there, mostly, um, as the historian there of a tour group, mostly of families of those who fought and either didn't make it home or many who did that day. So as we start the commemorations for the 80th anniversary of Dieppe, there'll be events in Ottawa, Windsor, Ontario, uh, as well as obviously in Dieppe, um, including a delegation with one of those who fought and survived that day, Gordon Howard Fennell. I thought I'd catch up with David O'Keefe, and uh, he's here. He's a professor of history at Montreal's Marinopolis College, and he joins us now. Thanks for your time, and great to hear from you. Well, hello, Ben. Thanks. Thanks a lot. We were there together 10 years ago. Time time just flies by. Far too fast. Yes, far too fast. Far too fast. So tell me about going back. You, you, you're with a very interesting group of people. A lot of people have ties to that day in one way or another. Yeah, this time I was uh, invited to come by as or come along as the historian on a tour that was taking roughly 20 family members of the men who fought at Dieppe uh, back for the first time. Some of them have never been here before. Um, Most of them are with the Royal Regiment of Canada that landed at Blue Beach, a little place called Puy. And there was a couple that were with the RHLI, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, and one with the Black Watch from uh, from Montreal. And, um, you know, as you know, um, this is uh, one of the darkest days in Canadian military history and all of Canadian history. And the regiments that I mentioned suffered almost 95% casualties on August 19th, 1942. It's unbelievable the number of people, 800, I guess, of uh, of the some 6,000 Canadians or 4,000 Canadians that disembarked were, were killed right away and, and many taken prisoner. What's it been like? Because, you know, I remember being there for the first time, having known some of the history, not all of it, but standing on that beach is is an incredible experience because it, it's you just can't imagine having to it, disembark into that. What's it been like for you and the families? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, the first time I was over here, I was in 80, I guess it was in 1989 when I came over. And it is the WTF moment, I have to yeah. tell you. I mean, you stand there and you turn around and you wonder, what were they thinking? 
Yeah. And of course, it's the same thing, even now with new research that shows what they were thinking. Um, it still is just shocking. And I'll give you an example. Um, this is the first time that I've come over um, on the ferry. We all came over together from New Haven, which is exactly the same route as the troops took 80 years ago. And, it's you know, I filmed here and I've researched here and I've been in helicopters offshore and, you know, on on, on boats not far off. But to come through the mist of the English Channel and then arrive in Dieppe as the mist is starting to lift, and then it's like a curtain, and this theater of Dieppe just appears in front of your eyes. It is one of the most overwhelming feelings you can have. And of course, you know, I'm supposed to be the grizzled veteran on all this, right? And <laughs> the families are just in awe, and they're staring at this, and you can see Blue Beach to the left, and Main Beach in the middle, and Green Beach to the right, and they're shocked at the size of the cliffs. And you figure, you know, and myself the same. I mean, I felt my heart kind of skipping and and sort of being awed in the moment. So Dieppe still, even 80 years later, even for somebody who, you know, perhaps is old grizzled like me now, um, I still, it still has a power that is just absolutely incredible. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze. I remember when we were done, a lot of the stories that we were getting ready to go home, I just took a walk out back to the beach and stared up at the cliffs to think about uh that day or that moment once again and just how daunting it must have been for listeners who may need reminding about about the importance of that day uh in dieppe uh, how significant was the battle and, and it was often seen as having been a catastrophe well they were well it, i mean at the end of the day it is i mean there was massive casualties on a the scale they never expected they expected they were going to take heavy casualties but heavy casualties in the military sense is about 30 maybe 40 percent they took 75 percent casualties right across the board here so this is something that was off the charts uh additionally they didn't get the objective that they were looking for they got very close but at the end of the day they came away with empty hands and so you know no matter what the research is um into the intent of the raid and what they were there for the fact remains the same that you know at the end of the day it was a disaster it was a costly disaster and um sadly um it was a failure but i think you know what it, it's one thing to say that dieppe was a failure and understand it's a failure but you have to understand really why it was a failure. And for years, decades, this was the problem. There were no legitimate reasons given for it. And that basically had to do with a combination of things, security classification, and also the men who planned it, particularly Lord Louis Mountbatten and his combined operations headquarters, were very ambitious. They were empire builders. They were worried about their brand. And so as a result, they were willing to distance themselves under a myriad of excuses that just permeated or penetrated the historical narrative up until about 10 years ago. And you then, uh, thanks to you and others, uh, then dove into some of that narrative to try and figure out what exactly the reasons behind this catastrophe, this catastrophe uh, were, what the mission was, um, failure or not. And it's a fascinating one. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my research stands on the shoulders of the historians that went before me, because if it wasn't for them laying down the the pillars of this, John Campbell and Brian Villa and, you know, Peter Henshaw and Hugh Henry and historians like that, um, I probably would not have realized the significance of the findings I was making, let alone how to zig or zag during my research. And, um, you know, it's kind of um, it, it, we chip away. 
It's it's a mining process, if you will. And I just happen to be at the right place at the right time with a whole series of declassifications coming. But um, it wasn't an overnight thing. It took about 15 years to unravel it. And I had to go through about 150,000 pages of material um, and prompt the British government to release some ultra classified material to get down to the bottom of what was at the core of the raid. My guest this half hour is historian David O'Keefe. He's a professor of history at Marinopolis College in Montreal, author of One Day in August about the raid on Dieppe. We're talking about the 80th anniversary of the raid on Dieppe, which is uh, Friday uh, in France. There'll be lots of celebrations or commemorations, rather, uh, both tomorrow and over the weekend. Uh, David, when we left, we were talking a bit about the research that you've done and, and what long remained a bit of a puzzle was why. And you you leaned into why. You found out a bit about why such what seemed like such a catastrophic disaster had a point. There was a point to why they went in that day in that place. Yes, without a doubt. And I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, had long been buried in classified files. And it had to do with code breaking, with code breaking and um, uh, dominating that kind of technology. Of course, you know, one of the biggest assets that the British and the Allies had at the beginning of the war was the ability, or eventually, the ability to break into German encrypted communications. And you can imagine how powerful that is in a war when you're able to know what your opponent is up to at any moment moment. And um, as a result, the Germans were always, of course, upgunning and improving their systems. And in 1942, they ended up introducing a new version of an Enigma machine, the famous Enigma machine that you've seen in, you know, the imitation game, etc. And so as a result, the British and the uh, Western allies lost the ability to do that to actually read the German codes. But what we didn't realize was that there was actually a policy, a pinch doctrine, and the pinch is the name of the term. So basically it's an operation launched to capture material that will aid the code breakers at Bletchley Park, like Alan Turing, to really exploit the genius that he was. Um, it's all about speeding up the process because the odds of breaking into a four-rotor Enigma machine is 92 septillion to one. But there's and a long odds. As a, <laughs> so as a historian, I had to look that up. I had no yeah. clue if the number that big existed. That's a lot of zeros. Um, yeah. yeah, so you can imagine that, yes, Turing was a genius, but you can't wait in war for genius to kick in. You need cheats. You need to be able to capture material. And this is what they'd been doing. And Dieppe wasn't the first one. As a matter of fact, they started in early or mid-1940, but really started to perfect them in 1941. And what they were doing, because they didn't want the Germans to catch on to what they were attempting to capture. So they took what was called a steam hammer to a nut approach, where instead of singling out one particular site, they they... Um, but they had to make any type of operation that was going after this material look like it was anything but an operation to capture this kind of material. And so they started developing this and they started pulling off these successful raids up in Norway. They did two in Norway. They did one on, they attempted one on the French coast, which wasn't successful. But the key was that the Germans never clued in to the fact that these raids were being put on to capture signals and encryption material. They just suspected this was PR, this was maybe to help the Russians, this was to you know provoke an air battle. So that continued. And in March of 1942, they realized that they could get their hands on a potential pot of gold at Dieppe. 
And so they started building the Dieppe operation. And the fascinating part was the forces that were allocated to do the pinch are the first forces that are assigned to the operation in March of 1942. And it continues right to the end. And that was the point. That's what they were looking for yeah. was, was this. Yeah. Uh, they didn't get it, though, right? No, as a matter of fact, you know, at this time, I mean, encryption is incredibly important. The Americans, of course, have changed the war, the course of the war in the Pacific by breaking Japanese codes and using that information to ambush the Japanese fleet just in June of 1942. So, you know, by the time the Canadians and the British hit the shores to get this, they're pulling out all stops. And at finally, when we understand what their targets were, which were naval headquarters in the port, a supply facility, which would stockpile the kind of material they were looking for, and of course, the ships in the harbor, um, they really expected all this to be, you know, relatively easy to get because it's right behind the main beach that you and I sat on many, many years ago. It's uh, literally a, a two minute walk to get there. And there were some minor units of the two battalions that hit Main Beach that came very close to getting into the port. But unfortunately, in the fog of war, a message was sent back to the command vessel, to General Hamilton Roberts, Ham Roberts, the Canadian who was commanding this, that the entire Essex Scottish battalion, all 550 men, were across the beach into the houses and about to pounce into the harbor and capture everything. The reality was that there was only about 27 men of the 550 that had actually had reached that. So this had a cascading effect. All the decisions that Ham Roberts took after that to perhaps, you know, try to send in the Royal Regiment of Canada, which had, he didn't realize had already been wiped out on Blue Beach, and then to send in the Fusilier Mont Royal from Montreal, then the Royal Marine Commandos over Main Beach, then call in the tanks, which never arrived. Um, was all in pursuit of the pinch. And at the end of the day, over half the casualties of the pursuit uh, were taken in pursuit, direct pursuit of the pinch. Over half the forces allocated to the raid were in direct pursuit. And even I would argue the most striking was that 500 and roughly 550 of the 907 deaths were taken trying to get these objectives on that day. And we never understood why. We knew these casualties were taken. We knew where they were taken. But we didn't understand the logic and the reason behind it until now. Important to remember on this day, the importance of the 80th anniversary. Of course, when we were there, there were still a handful of those who had survived that day who were there to tell the story. Fewer and fewer now, though. And it's important, I imagine, to keep uh, the memory of what happened that day alive, despite the fact that those who were there are no longer around to share the stories. Yeah, it is. I mean, when you and I were here 10 years ago, there was probably about 12 or 15 veterans that were, you know, able to come over and, you know, a handful more at home. I think there are only about four left now and only one of them is here. One, I think, is being honored in uh, in Windsor, uh, you know, on the day. Um, but I'm really not sure. But and there's one being honored as well on the 19th uh, earlier today, I suppose. Hmm. Um so, uh, yeah, the march of time, and that's why it's so important to continue to conduct historical research and understand why we were there, as opposed to simply just trophy polishing every year. David O'Keefe, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Ben, anytime.